And what really plays on my mind now is that poor soul with whatever happened to her that night at the railway station, I wasn't there for it then. So that, as a mother, has been a big thing. I don't go on about it, but now that I'm older, I think I'm spilling over. When Sarah McDermott went missing between getting off the train at Kananook Railway Station and reaching her car in the car park, nobody knew there was a budding serial killer in the area. In July 1990, Paul Denyer was still three years away from his killing spree in 1993, which claimed the lives of Elizabeth Stevens, Debbie Freem and Natalie Russell. He was stalking women though. By his own admissions after he was arrested, he told police he'd been stalking women around local neighbourhoods since he was 17. When Sarah was taken, Denya was 18 and 3 months. Paul Denya began the spate of murders by killing a cat and two kittens belonging to a woman he knew called Donna Vanes. She lived a couple of streets away from him in Claude Street. Denya killed his three known victims in a seven-week period in June and July 1993. When he was caught and interviewed by police, it was natural that he would be questioned about Sarah McDermott. Kananook Railway Station is right in the middle of his killing field. In 2005, Paul's sister-in-law, Julie Denyer, would tell a journalist from the Herald Sun that she and her husband, David, lived near the Kananook Station at the time Sarah vanished, and Paul Denyer was a frequent visitor at their house while David was at work. Paul would later claim he killed women because David had sexually abused him, a claim David later denied. Nonetheless, it was all very close to home. Vicky Petratus lived in the area at the time and wrote her best-selling book, The Frankston Murders, about the case. She became a veritable expert in the crimes of Paul Denyer. There's a striking point in Paul Denyer's police interview where homicide detective Rod Wilson asks Denyer about Sarah McDermott. After nearly 10 hours of gruelling interviewing, Wilson has momentarily forgotten Sarah McDermott's name. He says to Denyer, So you're aware there was a woman who was taken from the Cannonook Railway Station in 1990? Paul Denyer quickly replies, I didn't do that, not Sarah McDermott. It was Wilson's job to be thinking of Sarah McDermott at that moment. Denya had no reason to remember the name of a woman who disappeared three years earlier. His stress levels should have been much higher than Rod Wilson's, yet it is Denya who immediately comes up with her name. If he had no intimate knowledge of her disappearance, 
Why would she be in his mind at that moment when he would presumably be concerned only with the predicament he was in? When I was researching the Frankston murders book all those years ago, I remember asking one of the lead detectives from the Homicide Squad why they felt that Paul Denyer hadn't been responsible for Sarah. He said to me, well, we asked him and he said no. The logic went that if Denya confessed to killing Elizabeth, Debbie and Natalie, why wouldn't he admit to Sarah? Why indeed? Homicide detective Charlie Bazina sums up the police thinking at that time. The number of detectives spoke to Denya, but my issue was with Denya is that he freely admitted to killing the three women. It didn't fit his MO because we found the other three women. And if he made freely missions with three, that he would have he would have said, Oh yeah, look, I, I also killed that woman Sarah and I, I had a car at that particular stage. It just didn't fit. I've heard that a lot. The taking of Sarah didn't fit Denya's MO. But I've always wondered. Why not? The reason Sarah didn't fit Denya's MO seemed to be based purely on the fact that she was never found. Denya made some effort to hide his three known victims, but they were all found relatively quickly. I've always thought the similarities far outweighed the differences. Like considering Jodie Jones as a suspect, we should ask the same questions of Denya. Was he capable of taking Sarah and concealing her? Yes. Was he in the area at the time? Yes. Did he have murderous intent? Definitely. Was he capable of keeping the secret? Yes. He's done a lot of things he's never admitted to. I asked Victoria Police if we could get access to Paul Denyer's interview tapes. They've been used a lot of times before on crime shows, we've all seen them, but after much consideration, my liaison person said no. Undeterred, I went hunting for them online and found sound bites in old episodes of Forensic Investigators and Sensing Murder. I think it's important to hear some of these things straight from Denya. Always wanted to kill. Since when? Since I was about 14. Well, what do you think that is? Um, why why has it, it taken you uh, up until Elizabeth's even the first person you've ever killed? Yeah. Number one. Why do you think it's taken so long? You've always felt these urges since you were, as you said, 14. I don't know, just waiting for the right time. Waiting for that small... Silent alarm to trigger me off. So, what if that small silent alarm went off earlier? I want to explore the ways Sarah's disappearance does fit Denya's MO. Three years after Sarah was taken, Paul Denya grabbed Elizabeth Stevens on the 11th of June 1993, soon after she got off the bus on Cranbourne Road. He threatened her with his homemade fake gun and forced her to walk with him around to the Lloyd Park Reserve where he could kill her undisturbed. He carved a strange crisscross pattern into her chest, which he later denied any memory of. 
Elizabeth was taken on a cold winter's night after getting off public transport. So was Sarah. Can you tell me why you attacked her on that night? Just... Just said... Just had the feeling, that's all. Where, what sort of feeling can you possibly describe it? Where, where you had this feeling? Just wanted... Just wanted to kill. Denya's next victim was Rosa Toth on the 8th of July. She got off the train at Seaford Station, one stop before Cannonock, and Denya grabbed her a little way up the road. He dragged her toward the Seaford North Reserve, seeking to disappear among the trees where he might remain undetected with his victim. Rosa was lucky enough to get away. This is some weeks after Elizabeth Stevens. Yeah, I was just... Like every day, I was just going up, boiling up, until mm-hmm. I got to that stage. If that lady hadn't have gone away, what would have happened to her? I would have killed her. Taking Elizabeth from a bus stop and grabbing Rosa after she got off a train and trying to drag them both into the seclusion of bushes, doesn't this sound similar to what happened to Sarah? Thwarted in his attack on Rosa Toth, Denya hopped on the train and travelled to the next stop, Cannonock Railway Station. He got off there and headed straight down McCulloch Avenue till he got to the milk bar on the corner of McCulloch and Cannonock Avenue, where young mum Debbie Freem had just driven up to buy milk. When Debbie returned to her car, Denya was hiding in her back seat. He forced her to drive to Taylor's Road in Dandenong South, a place he was familiar with, filled with farms and trees. Again, he was alone in a secluded place to do what he pleased. It's not a stretch to ask if this was why Sarah was taken. Was she taken from the point of the initial assault to a secluded place where her attacker could do whatever he wanted? And why did he choose Debbie Freeman? What caused you to select her at that time? Just that gay feeling. From his flat on Frankston Dandenong Road, Daniel looked across onto the trees lining the Long Island Golf Club. And it was in the grounds of this tree-lined reserve that he snatched 17-year-old Natalie Russell as she walked down the overgrown track between the Long Island and the Peninsula Golf Clubs. She was dragged off the track and through a cyclone wire fence to a secluded location, murdered, then left in the bushes. And what was Denya's reason for killing Natalie? Same reason as before. No, I've always wanted to kill. Since when? Since I was about 14. All Denya's victims were taken from their original location and moved elsewhere. Denya did this so that he could take his time undisturbed to carry out whatever fantasies were going through his mind. Fantasies he was very vague about when the police questioned him. I've been stalking women for a few years. In Frankston. Just waiting for that opportunity. Waiting for the sign. 
Paul Denyer's oldest brother, David, had gone to the UK for a holiday in 1989. He stayed with his uncle Tom and Aunt Julie. David soon began a relationship with Julie, and after she divorced Tom, they married the following year. Bringing Julie and her two children back to Australia in May 1990 set something in motion within the Denyer family. Considering Paul would later claim David's sexual abuse of him was the reason he became a serial killer, a claim David denied, his brother's return two months before Sarah went missing was a time of high stress for Paul. And stress in serial killers become stressors, or things that push them over the edge. So we have a self-confessed serial killer stalking women for years in the area. He stalks women by roaming the streets at night, waiting for the sign to kill. We have at least one woman followed from the Cannonock Railway Station a month before Sarah was taken. We have a killer who attacked Rosa Toth after she got off the train one stop before Cannonock, dragged her into the bushes, but she managed to escape, only for the killer to get on the train himself, get off at Cannonock Station, and then a short time later attack another woman by kidnapping her and taking her to a secluded location. We have a killer who targets women getting off public transport. We have a killer who snatches his victims in one place and then takes them to a more secluded place. And then we have the area. This is all occurring in the same stomping ground. The overpass from the Cannonock Station comes out onto Quinn Street. The next street down is Claude Street, where Denya broke into the home of Donna Vane's and slaughtered her cats before the 1993 spate of murders began. So if you look at a map, the position of the Cannonock Railway Station is at the centre of Denya's killing fields. There was also another strange attack in the area that Laurie Ratz remembers, and I remember hearing about it at the time, but I have no further details than memory. Also, talking to Clark and Randall, I think they did an investigation, this is before Sarah's disappearance, of a man and a woman who were attacked crossing the Cannonock Creek in a road that leads down to towards the Cannonock Railway Station, but up near Nepean Highway. And they were always concerned about that the attacker was, was a single male um, with a knife intent on doing the majority of damage to the woman. And the other guy fought him off and the two of them were really, really seriously injured. But they managed to get away from him and find their way to a shop where they could ring the police. So you've got that. Then sometime later you've got Sarah McDermott is abducted and considered to be dead and considered to be murdered. And then two years later you get this spate of murders in, I'm not sure what it was, you'd know better than I, but it was in a space of about three or four weeks. Seven. There wasn't Debbie Freem in a car, taken from a car. Now, that was close to Cannonock Railway Station as well. So how often does all this happen? Is it I, I don't believe in coincidence, but I, I certainly think that it was an avenue of inquiry. And if you mark Rosa Toth, Debbie, Elizabeth, Natalie, 
the cats. Yeah. Cole yeah. Clark yeah. did the cats mm. clawed straight. It's all it's it's all in this cluster. You can throw a net over the top of it. So as someone who's been looking at this case for years, I get a little frustrated when I hear that Sarah's disappearance is nothing like Denya's MO. I think it is absolutely like his other crimes. But Denya denied having anything to do with Sarah and the cops took him at his word. Denya was polite and helpful and perhaps more importantly, deferential. Over the years, a number of detectives have spoken to Denya in prison. Well-known homicide detective Ron Idles was one of them. Ron wasn't available to talk on this podcast, but in his book, he wrote that Denya's name had come up as a suspect, so Ron decided to go into prison and ask him. Here's what author Justine Ford wrote about that visit in her book about Ron called The Good Cop. When I got there, he said, I'm not going to participate in a conversation with you unless you change the documentation to say Paula Denya. Ron amended the paperwork and Denya agreed to see him. Ron got down to the business of McDermott's disappearance. He said, I'm sick of being accused of murder, Ron recalls. He gave me sufficient detail to form the view that he wasn't involved and wanted it to be publicly known. He thought it didn't do justice to Sarah McDermott's family. I could see the point. Soon afterwards, someone leaked to the Herald Sun that Ron Idles had visited Denya in jail. I then gave some comments to the Herald Sun saying Paula was not involved. After that, I got a letter from Paula thanking me for my honesty. Despite the long line of male detectives taking him at his word, Denya was very different in the company of women. With the detectives, he was helpful and courteous, but at least one of them saw something very different on the night of his arrest. Years ago, when I interviewed Detective Mark Wolf, he told me what happened when a female doctor walked into the interview room to take Denya's DNA samples. Denya had been calm and almost casual, but as soon as the woman entered the room, his whole expression changed. Wolf noticed the way he looked at her. His look seemed to say, if you weren't here, I'd tear her to pieces. The change in him for those couple of moments was frightening, and it gave the detective a glimpse into what his victims might have seen. I want to tell you a story that I heard about Paul Denyer that is very different to his polite denials to detectives that left them walking away, believing him. Paul Denyer served the early years of incarceration in the Melbourne Assessment Prison, known as MAPS for short. Prisoners like Denyer and his cellmate Robert Arthur Selby Lowe who had murdered six-year-old Cherie Beasley in 1991, were hated by most of the other prisoners. Perhaps that explained the friendship that quickly flourished between them. A young female prison guard worked at MAPS when Denya was first sent there. We will call her Jessica, which is not her real name. 
Jessica had a run-in with Denya that still gives her the chills. He was fairly new in. He was a bit cocky but very quiet. He tended to have that air about him that he knew everything because he watched a few cop shows or something like that and he thought, I've got this sorted out. I know the way they think I'm above it all. I believe he thought he was playing us. I'm no expert, just trained in what I do, but he certainly had a strong dislike for female officers and you could feel that just ooze off him. It all began when Jessica crossed Robert Lowe. When I knew them when they first both came in, that was a very close friendship and the cells were next to each other and they could talk to each other under the door and all sorts of things. Denya formed a relationship with Lowe, who by that time would have been in his late 50s, to Denya's early 20s. He has the voice and the almost subservient manner that he uses to have Lowe, who is a very dominant figure in his sexual conquests and what he wants out of someone. At MAPS, it was Robert Lowe's job to empty the bins. For whatever rule infraction, Jessica can't remember what it was, she'd taken away that privilege. Lowe was angry and went to his good friend, Paul Denyer. The serial killer let his anger simmer, then waited till he could get Jessica alone. What happened next needs to be looked at more closely. I relieved him of that position. He was not happy about that and he must have gone and said something to Denya. And Denya came back and said, you're trying to assert yourself a bit much around here. And I said, no, this is my job and I'd appreciate it if you just stand back and get involved in your own things and don't worry about mine and certainly don't worry about blows. He was going on that he was a good mate and he'd protect him and I said that's very nice that you've got those values and then he came back about 20 minutes later and said you know they're going to let me out of here one day and I said well that's an opinion that's not entirely agreed on by many people but I wasn't going to inflame the situation so I let it go and he said well when I do get out you'll be one of the first people I look for and I said why is that and he said because I just like to kill you and I said well you wouldn't be the first person to say that Paul and I doubt very much that you'll be the last I said go and do what I told you to do which was clean his cell. I said, I want that cell done in 15 minutes. And he walked away from me and he said, you know, you wouldn't have to do much. We could just meet up at Cannonook Railway Station and take it from there. While Jessica was completely rattled at the threat, she had to maintain her composure and keep the situation calm. She knew more than anyone just how dangerous the men she guarded were. And I let the comment go. I just ignored it and I reported it to my senior officer. But I didn't make a scene of it in front of him. I didn't want him to know that I was going to report it and I let it go. But 
the flash in his eyes, the way he looked at me. I've never, I've never ever felt a chill by any prisoner in my custody. No one, I've never felt fear ever once. And I've been involved in a lot of incidents and a lot of very violent incidents. And I've never seen anyone just, his eyes just glazed over like a shark. And it was just, there was just nothing in them. And, and I, I could see behind those eyes just that, that hate, that absolute hatred, whether it was for me or for the uniform, I don't know, but whether it was for all womankind, I don't know. Paul Denyer had politely denied any involvement in Sarah's disappearance to a number of male detectives. Yet, I wonder what all these men would think if they had witnessed that moment of pure hatred and power when Denya threatened a female prison guard with the very crime he'd denied. He could have said, I'll meet you at the bike track or I'll meet you at the milk bar or the bus stop, the well-known locations where he had taken Natalie, Debbie and Elizabeth, but he didn't. He threatened to kill her by saying, we could just meet up at Cannonock Railway Station and take it from there. So there you have a serial killer, probably around 1994 when he had newly arrived in prison, threatening to kill a female prison guard and referencing the site Sarah was taken from. I told Charlie Bazina about this incident. Well, you know, but there's always always double-sided coins. You can look at it and say, well, yeah, why would you do that? But as I just said, he might do that to give himself more bravado and more weight to his threat to say, oh, and then have people think because, you know, I found Daniel to be a very intelligent man. No two ways about it. He thought out his crimes when he said he'd come back and he melted the soles of his shoes after killing Elizabeth and this type of thing. His recall, he took us straight back to where one of the purses was buried, straight to that location, and, you know, smart enough to put himself in every location, every crime scene, because he said he was a big boy. If the police thought, well, I told you I was there. You know, well, I've got no issues. Had an answer, how'd you get the injuries to your hands? Oh, working on my car, the fan belt. But he then knew when that question was put by Rod, when he says, we're going to get a forensic doctor to talk to you and, and examine you, and we asked him about his finger, and he would have then, the penny then dropped. That's when the brake goes to the toilet, speaks to the detective, and says, I did the three of them. Because he then knew that he did injure his finger in killing Natalie, and then he, he, and he either took the punt. He may have preempted it, and we may have not have had that little piece of skin. Uh, he didn't know that, but he then jumped, which was good, because let's say we didn't have that, we had nothing else. Because hadn't it been for that or his admissions, he would have walked out the door that night or that early morning. After all of that, if he stuck to it, but he had an answer, he could have just said no comment. That information from the prison officer go anywhere? Did she put that into her analyst to be able to put against his profile against Denya? The incident was reported within the prison system, but I'm not sure if the information was passed on to police. The day after Sarah went missing, a man called Richard came forward with an interesting story. Around 10.50 the previous evening, 
He was driving up Hartnett Drive. Hartnett ends in a T-intersection with Clower Street, which becomes Wells Road, where the Cannanook Railway Station is. Richard was driving up Hartnett Drive near the RTA when he saw a man and a woman walking along the footpath. He described the woman as being about 20, not very tall. She had a pink tennis racket. I noticed it because it really stood out. I also saw that she was wearing bright, semi-luminous track pants. The male person had her around the waist. I thought they might have been boyfriend and girlfriend. I didn't notice if she was walking oddly. Richard's description of the woman is very similar to Sarah. Short, wearing a tracksuit and carrying a pink handled tennis racket. Let's revisit how Denya took Elizabeth Stevens. Just tell us in your own words, Paul, what happened in relation to the death of Elizabeth Stevens at Langwarren. I saw her get off the bus. I walked up behind her, stuck my left hand around her, ran her mouth like this and held her a gun to my head right here. When Paul Denyer took Elizabeth, he saw her get off the bus, followed her, then walked up behind her and grabbed her. She didn't scream because he told her he had a gun. It was a fake homemade gun, but it would have felt very real when he pressed it into her side. He walked with her as if they were a couple, not kidnapper and victim. He wasn't worried on the cold, wet night because he knew if he met anyone, they wouldn't be looking at him. They would duck their heads against the rain. The taking of Elizabeth was about control. Denya could literally walk up to someone getting off a bus, pretend to have a gun, and make them do anything he wanted. Sarah, too, was getting off public transport when she was targeted. We know the attack took place at her car, because that's where the blood was found. But did the police consider this girl on Hartnett Drive could have been Sarah? That the man she was walking with might have taken her, but she might have persuaded him to take her back to her car? I discussed this theory with Laurie Ratz. Yeah, look, I, to be honest, Vicky, I didn't even give that much of a... I, I, I thought that might have been a bit, a bit of a furphy, but now that I look and, and see how close it was, look, I thought, oh, no, I know where that RTA is and it's a long way away, but it's not, is it? It's only, it wouldn't be 500 metres. In 1990, someone leading Sarah away from the car park would have been an unlikely scenario. But once Denya was caught in 1993, we know that it was part of his M.O. because that's exactly how he took Elizabeth. It's, it's certainly, it's interesting. It's, I'm going to have to go back and have another read of that and a bit of a think about it, even try and, yeah. I asked Cole Clark if it was possible that someone could have led Sarah away from the car park. Turns out he worked on the Elizabeth Stevens murder case and knew firsthand how easily that could happen. Look, that's quite possible. It could have occurred that way. I did actually work on 
Elizabeth Stevens's murder with um, homicide blokes, uh, Graham Arthur, and she got off the bus and walked a considerable distance with him, and she didn't try to escape or anything like that because she was just too frightened. And uh, eventually, he walked her into a oval area, and it was a terrible thing to see. But in hindsight, you say she should have tried to escape or whatever. But when you're frightened for your life, you know, and people did see them walking down the roads and took no notice of it until later on. And after accosting her on the street and forcing her to walk with him like they were boyfriend and girlfriend, Paul Denyer took Elizabeth Stevens to Lloyd Park in Langwarren and stabbed her to death. Afterwards, he told police, there was a puddle of, like, flooded area there and I pushed her into there so she could wash her, you know, blood off her and all that and then I dragged her across the water. We are going to discuss water later, but it's worthwhile thinking about this as a scenario. Could Denya, or someone else, have forced Sarah to take a walk? Could she have convinced them to take her back to her car, and then the attack occurred at her car only later? Could this also account for people hearing screams closer to 11 that night? Well, we don't know for sure, but since we don't have a conclusion, everything should be considered. And finally, Denya kept trophies. After he killed Debbie Freem, he returned to her car the following day and took her purse. I wanted to see what her name was and everything out of her wallet, so... Right. I took it up to the golf course and buried it. So you'd be able to show us where that is? Exactly. If that would you be able to find the spot? All right, I'll find it. In a later reenactment video, Denya takes the detectives straight to the purse, scuffs at the area with his feet, and quickly becomes short of breath. It's not buried deeply, but it's concealed. Burying purses is also something we're going to come back to later, when a new piece of evidence comes to light. Detective Cole Clark saw Paul Denyer on the night he was arrested. I had the misfortune of meeting him and being there when he was interviewed, not in the room, but I, I was outside the room when he was being interviewed. When Rod Wilson came out during an interruption to the interview, I was standing outside and Rod said to me, can you go and sit with Denyer, please, while we have a bit of a talk? And just then someone yelled out to me, Cole, you want it on the phone? And I actually grabbed Darren O'Loughlin, who eventually sat in the interview with uh, Denya, and said, can you go and do this, mate? I've got to go to answer this phone call. And um, as it turned out, uh, Darren went and sat with Denya, and and Denya then suddenly confessed to him. So it was, yeah, it's interesting, but yeah, he's a strange character. Cole Clark and I discussed the theory that if Daniel was responsible for the attack on Sarah McDermott, why didn't he confess? Because again, that's the standard response. He confessed to three, why wouldn't he confess to Sarah? But the problem was he didn't. He denied having anything to do with any of the murders for hours. He sat there and calmly told police his exact movements on the days of each of the murders. He was calm, self-assured, and he denied all of it. It was only during the break 
when the police told him they were going to take a DNA sample, that he asked Darren O'Loughlin, have they got something to DNA because they've asked for my blood? And O'Loughlin said, I really don't know. You should ask the homicide squad detectives. And Denya said, when they get the blood, will the DNA match? And O'Loughlin said, again, I don't know, Paul. You really should be asking Detective Senior Sergeant Wilson about this. Denya then said, okay, I killed all three of them. Darren O'Loughlin wanted this on the record, so he got Denya back into the interview room. The formal confession part of the interview began at 3.45 in the morning. The interview had started at 9.22 the previous evening. So that means that Paul Denya had calmly denied everything for six hours without even breaking a sweat. Denya's evasiveness wasn't lost on Cole Clark either. Yeah, when, when I say he was telling what he'd done to the girls and all that, but as you said, it did take some six hours for him to come out. And he was making up stories left, right and centre about why his car was parked where it was and all those sorts of things. Like, he was a pathological liar and he was a good liar. But I think when he saw the chips were down at the end, he, he decided he'd confess, but I'm sure he hasn't confessed to everything he did. I know he was running around killing animals and all that prior to his murderous rampage and he'd been doing that for years and he hid a lot of that from his family and investigators so you wouldn't know would you what if denya took sarah as his first victim and wanted to do something to her that might have left trace evidence behind denya left the strange crisscross markings on elizabeth stevens body he never explained why he did it And when the detectives asked him, he said he couldn't remember, but conceded if they were there, then he must have done them. Could he have done something similar to Sarah? Yeah, that certainly would be an incentive why he wouldn't confess to it if you were trying to hide something that you'd done differently, I suppose. But look, we didn't discount him from it at all. His family thought that he may have done it and uh, actually gave information um, via a Melways later on that they found in a car where he marked particular areas uh, in McClellan Drive area, in the bush areas, and around there where he marked them on the Melways, we actually went and dug up all these areas. A lot of them were sand pit areas where, uh, where originally that the sand was taken from these particular areas and it was a bit of a quagmire that was wet, easy places to dispose of a body. And we went and actually dug up all these areas as best we could to check to look for Sarah or look for other bodies, but we didn't find anything at that time. Now we all use SatNav, but back then everybody used a street directory for Melbourne which was called the Melway. The Melway's street directory that Cole is referring to, I remember well because I was the one who gave it to the police. Back in 1994, when I was researching the book The Frankston Murders, a member of Denya's family called me in a panic. They had found Denya's street directory among his things and he had made strange markings on the pages where he had taken his victims. 
He had drawn devil faces and childish penis and testicle cartoons on the page which featured the flora and fauna reserve, one of his well-known haunts. He had also circled a huge area along the Maroondah Highway around Alexandra and Eildon. His family was really upset and felt like the street directory might be important in the search for Sarah McDermott. I rang the homicide squad and two detectives came to my house to collect it. I asked Laurie Ratz whether he followed Denya's arrest with an interest in Sarah, especially when his police colleague Claude Minasini was called in on the case. Claude had been sent by Victoria Police to be trained in profiling at the FBI Academy at Quantico. When you heard that Frankston had a serial killer, did you automatically say, Sarah? No, not not initially. See, at that stage I was working in the crime department for the assistant commissioner and I worked closely with Claude Minasini and Claude was working with the homicide squad because Claude's expertise was looking at patterns of violent crime. Initially, when Claude started to look at it, there had only been two murders, so the third girl hadn't been murdered at that stage. So when the third murder occurred, and, and, and at that stage too, the homicide squad were looking at them as separate murders and not connected, but when the third one, like how many times do you get three murders within that short space of time in a small geographical area? But And then Claude that raised the issue that it's interesting that it's all around that, that same area where Sarah McDermott went missing, and that was what piqued my interest. I have a clear memory of discussing the Frankston case with Cole Clark back in 1994 at the CIB office. I told him about all the information I'd gathered, and I'll never forget what he said. He said, you have to remember, we had seven weeks to desperately find out who the serial killer was. Then once he's arrested, our only goal is to put together enough evidence to convict him. You have the luxury to look at the case over years, trying to find connections. We don't. It reminded me of the huge difference between the writer and the investigator. My job is to make sense of the story. Their job is to capture and convict. In hindsight, Laurie Rance is disappointed that Denya wasn't questioned more about Sarah's disappearance. So I was interested once they got him and they were interviewing him, you know, whether they would pursue the, the Sarah McDermott angle as well. I suppose they were more concerned about making sure that they got enough evidence on the three murders that they had, the three bodies that they had, and then they could deal after that with the Sarah angle. But from my understanding and the little bit I saw of the record of interview, it was virtually two questions. In fact, the ironic thing was that the investigator who was doing the interview couldn't remember Sarah's name. And Paul Denyer did. He said, oh, you mean Sarah McDermott? And, and uh, Cannonhawk Railway Station? No, I didn't do it. It is interesting that Denyer, you know, right off the top of his head, not even thought about it, he just go, oh, what was her name again? Um, um, sounded like... No, he just went straight to it, Cannonhawk Railway Station, and then he certainly said Sarah McDermott. While we couldn't get Denyer's interview tapes... I have the next best thing, the transcript. What is extraordinary is 
Not only does Daniel name Sarah, he also mentions Michelle Brown, who was murdered in 1992. Remember we mentioned Michelle in the first episode, last seen at the same service station that Carolyn McAllister had run to after being followed from Cannonook Railway Station a month before Sarah was taken. Their names spring so easily to his mind, even after many hours of a gruelling police interview. Here is the exchange between Denya and homicide detective Rod Wilson. Wilson. So, are you aware that there was a woman who was taken from Cannonock Railway Station in 1990? Denya. I didn't do that. Not Sarah McDermott. Wilson. Right. Do you know anything about that? Denya. No, only what I heard on the news. Wilson. Right. Denya. And the same with the brown girl. Wilson. Mm-hmm. Denya. Same as what I heard on the news. Wilson. You don't know anything about those matters, okay? Denya. No, I'm telling you the truth. Wilson. Absolutely, yeah, no problem. And that was the full extent of the questioning about Sarah. I've always wondered what would have happened if Rod Wilson had followed up that question about Sarah by asking Denya if he had an alibi for that night. Denya had a story ready for each of the murders to explain why he was in the area. I discussed this with Laurie Rance. I reckon if they had said, where were you the night Sarah McDermott went missing, he would have had a story ready to go. Quite possibly. I had the same discussion with Charlie Bazina. I often wonder if Rod Wilson had said, oh, do you remember what you were doing on the night Sarah McDermott went missing? No one's going to remember three years earlier, but he would have gone, oh, yeah, I remember that night. He would have come up with some story. Yeah, yeah, he would have, because he put himself at every crime scene for a start, because he's smart enough to know, and his recall was phenomenal in relation to it. So, does Laurie feel that Denya could have confessed to three, but not four? The other thing in relation to what the, the thoughts that were going around at that stage was he killed the three girls and left them in the open. If he killed Sarah McDermott, why didn't he do that too? Again, who knows what he did? If he killed Sarah and disposed of her body, maybe he thinks I can get away with this. They don't know where she is. They don't know who did it. But then again, how far do you want to drive around Frankston at night time with a body in the car, be it alive or dead? It's hard to, to actually think what some people would do. Some people are cool, cold-hearted, collected. They look at these things very clinically. They wouldn't worry about it. Others would panic. But I would say that with Sarah's disappearance, there's an element of patience, of being collected and understanding what the situation would be to leave her body there for such amount of time to work out how to transport her away, whether it be in a car, I would say more than likely in a car, because if she had been picked up and carried somewhere, we would have found blood, a trail of blood leading away. So asking Charlie Bazina, were there any other suspects aside from Jodie Jones and later, Paul Denyer? Look, there may have been, but none that sort of stand out in their minds. So I think you, you get a lot of potential 
suspects slash persons of interest to say could have, yeah, this guy's a bit odd, this person was a bit odd, yeah, maybe, and they remain there in the ether until something else crops up and all of a sudden they say, oh, you know, Charlie Bazina was a bit of a shonky. The detectives go back and they say, geez, Charlie Rader mentioned here, and he made a mention there, it then reignites the interest in the investigators and they go and speak to this guy. So, yeah, look, but no one is prominent, certainly as uh, a person of interest as Denya and not, not as prominent as Jody Jones, that we really put a lot of emphasis and a lot of follow-up on it. And it's unfortunate that people like you can't, and even me as a private investigator, you might get the inquest brief, but you can't get the investigation file. And Charlie has pinpointed the ultimate challenge for researchers. We don't have access to what the police have. It's still an open investigation. But when an investigation is so old, it's easy to think, the police have had 30 years and haven't returned Sarah to her family. So maybe it's time to look at some new theories, listen to some new voices and see what happens. Coming up in the next episode of Searching for Sarah McDermott. And so we've picked it up. It was caked in mud. It was a handbag. So we've pulled it up, opened up the handbag and saw that there was a purse in there. So pulled out a couple of the cards and one of the cards I pulled out was a Civic Video rental card and then looked at the name and it said Sarah McDermott.